And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, uh, which is the section of Scripture where the angels uh, sing and announce to the, the shepherds uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we'll be preaching from uh, Luke chapter 1, or excuse me, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 20. Listen uh, to the Word of God this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of, of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was uh, of the town and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her birth or for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on, on earth, peace among uh, those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened with which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known, this, they made known uh, the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's bow for a word of prayer before we continue. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come to you today and we want to marvel at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, at our uh, Savior. Such preciousness, such wonderful truths, and, and we need to be reminded uh, that, that these things are, are not just stories, but, but real events that happened, things that, that took place so that Jesus might be our Lord and our Savior. May we, Lord, marvel at that the one who was in such a lowly manger was the King of Kings, that the one who was wrapped in swaddling clothes was the Lord of all and is our Lord, now having died, been crucified, and, and rose up from the dead, and, 
and ascended to your own right hand, Father God, where he sits and and rules and reigns over all of his creation. And yet, Lord, may, may we in our hearts today give glory to God just as the angels did on that most precious evening. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, this weekend is a is a big uh, weekend, uh, and not just because it's before Christmas. This weekend is a is a big weekend for for me and some of my friends because Star Wars finally opened in the theaters. Um, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, is how uh, Star Wars begins, and I'm assuming uh, the new one begins that way. If you've seen it, don't give me any spoilers. I'm waiting till next week uh, to be able to get to the theaters. But the reason I, I mention Star Wars uh, is because sometimes I think we treat Christmas kind of like we treat the other stories that are out there that we love. Maybe you don't like Star Wars. Maybe you don't like Star Trek. I'll forgive you uh, for those things. But, but maybe you have other stories that you read as a child that just inspired you. Maybe you had a particular fairy tale that you that you love that you enjoyed and and some of those things can convey very good morals some of those things can be very inspiring stories and there's nothing wrong with having a fictional story that you love maybe you have a favorite book or a favorite author of fiction and you've been challenged by it or it made you think or maybe you just enjoyed it and if you want to have some fun you pick up one of those great old books and you read it but sometimes, I think in the Christmas holidays and, and our Christmas traditions, we treat Christmas as just a nice, touching story, something that affects our heart, something that gets us excited, just like those Star Wars fans go to those movies and they get all excited. But there's a difference. Jesus Christ really was born in the town of Bethlehem. There's a difference between saying Star Wars or whatever you like is a, a great story and maybe it even uh, gives you goosebumps when you watch it versus saying Jesus is real and he was born in Bethlehem. And that should touch our hearts in a totally different way because it is real and it actually happened. Hebrews chapter 1 says, a long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Almost sounds like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it's not. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then it says in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his mighty, by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God, and this is our main point this morning, God made himself known in the Son, Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that, that, that this is not just God making himself known by telling a good story, a, a creative story. This is God making himself known 
by coming down, his son being sent to be born of the Virgin Mary in this manger in Bethlehem. There is nothing touching about the story of Jesus if it did not happen. If, if this is just a fanciful myth that we tell, a warm, touching tradition that we have, Christmas at the end of the day has no real meaning. Just like Star Wars might be fun, it might be exciting, but at the end of the day it's not real and it has no real meaning. And as much as I hate to tell the rabid fans, it has no bearing on your life. But Jesus and the birth of Jesus, because it is real, because it happened, it has every bearing on your life. And the story is only touching and life-changing so far as it is true. And really happen. And we can get caught up in the Christmas season in, in the sentimentality. And much of it is good. But it is at the end of the day meaningless if Jesus isn't real. I want to make three points for you this morning. And I just kind of want to tell you the, the tenor or the tone of the points. The first one will be a historical point. These things really happened. Uh, the second will be a theological point. This is who Jesus really is. And, and the third one will be more of a, an application point, a, a direction for worship, a, a what do we do with these truths now that we've explored them a little bit. So the historical point, the first thing this morning, is that God uses human means and historical events to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 2 and flip over to Luke uh, chapter 1. And I want to remind you what Luke is doing in his gospel and also in the book of Acts, which he wrote. He writes this at the very beginning. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from time past, to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Concerning the things you have been taught, you can be certain that they are true. You can be certain that they are real, that, that Luke dug into these things, that these were not things he was merely told like in some childhood game of telephone. You know how you play the game of telephone where, where one person whispers a secret to another who whispers a secret to another and, and you go down this chain and by the time uh, you get to the end. You may have started with an e a message like, I had eggs for breakfast. By the time you get to the end, the message is something like, purple hippopotamuses are fun. And, and it, you ever play that game? This is not how the gospel message, these truths, were passed on. 
They were publicly spoken to people and and eyewitnesses, perhaps even I I tend to think we don't know for sure, but I tend to think that perhaps Luke has even talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the way that he can add this commentary that that she cherished these things in her heart. And, and it'd be a little hard to know how she did that unless one of the eyewitnesses, and this is a very real possibility, that he had talked to Mary as one of these eyewitnesses that he goes into uh, the accounts on. So we have at the beginning of our passage in chapter 2 uh, a census that takes place throughout the land. This is tied to real events that took place. Uh, when Star Wars starts, it starts off in, in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Not real events. Uh, if you're into fairy tales, they all start off, you know, once upon a time. And, and that's a, a clue to us in, in the English language These things really didn't happen at any time. But we know that this happened at a particular time. Look at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, of Syria. So this is when Augustus is, is Caesar, and you may have heard that name before. Uh, he follows Julius Caesar, if I remember my Caesars uh, correctly. I believe he was a, a nephew or, or something uh, like that. And so we know this guy, Caesar Augustus, is real. We also know from history uh, that he loved taking censuses, that he was often getting his administrators throughout various regions to make sure they knew or counted how many people were in the land. One of the reasons you do that is so you can make sure that everybody's paying their taxes. Uh, The IRS loves the census that comes out every 10 years because then they know where you are and you need to be paying your taxes. Well, Caesar Augustus was the same way. We also have record of this guy Quirinius, uh, the governor of Syria. In fact, he was uh, a loyal subject, a servant of of Caesar, he was at various times a proconsul. I think he was even a senator. I remember reading he was a legate. He he was sent into the eastern regions of the empire, and then eventually uh, was made uh, the governor of Syria. We have other historical sources that document this guy really was real. You might have never heard of him until you read Luke, but he was out there. And if you lived at this time, you would have uh, known of him. There's two difficulties, though, in trying to to put together some of these events. So um, just to remind you your your biblical history a little bit, uh, Jesus was not born in A.D. 0. There is no A.D. 0. It goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Jesus, we think, was born uh, between 6 and 4 B.C. He would have had to have been born when Herod the, before Herod the Great died. Because remember, they flee to Egypt and then Herod the Great dies. We know he died in 4 BC. So Jesus is born in that time frame. One of the difficulties is that from the records that we have, Quirinius wasn't the governor of Syria until about AD 6. So about 10 years after the death of Herod. And, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is you might from time to time run into someone that knows these things and says, ah, oh, see, you can't trust the Bible. So I want to just walk through this a little bit with you. We also know of, of at least one census 
that Quirinius took, and we know it happened in AD 6. Now, we need to be careful here because we don't have a record of every uh, uh, census that, that Quirinius took while he was governor of Syria. And so commentators looking at Luke and studying these things, they have a, a couple different solutions. And the reason I want to bring these out, again, is because sometimes you'll talk to someone and they've, they've read someone, one person, one place at one time, and then they say, ah, see, you can't trust the Bible. But you can trust the Bible. The Bible is true, and these things fit with history. One possible solution to this is you could, in the Greek, translate the, the word first into the word before. That's the way the word is sometimes or on rare occasions used. This would mean that Luke is saying this was the census that happened before Quirinius took place as governor of Syria. That's probably not the best solution, but it is possible. The other option is some scholars think that there might have been two times that Quirinius was governor once while Herod the Great was still alive, and that would have been when Jesus was born. And then a second time we have recorded later on that we know about in AD 6. That's a, a possible solution. I think that one of the better solutions is that, that either some of the dates that we have from some of our other sources are wrong, and, and I've read a couple articles that have suggested that, or that this census was something that began in the time of Herod the Great and wasn't completed until Quirinius was the governor, but it was the census that bore Quirinius's name. It was the census that he got the credit for. Sort of like, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act. We know that Obama didn't write it, right? Um, he did not get, and I'm not insulting him, he just, he didn't write it. He didn't get down and put pen to paper. But what do we call it? Obamacare, right? He gets the credit for it. And so that could be what's going on here, that, that this is a real census that Caesar Augustus called for, and yet it didn't actually get finished till Quirinius was the governor. And Luke's saying, by the way, that's the census that we're talking about. Um, that's a possibility. We do know, and some have suggested, that Quirinius was probably in the region of Syria and Galilee and Bethlehem uh, before he was the governor. And because he was a trusted uh, aide of, of, um, of Caesar Augustus, that he could have been the administrator of it even before he became governor and then later became governor. I don't want to bore you with all of that, but what I do want you to understand is that scriptures are trustworthy. We know that censuses were taken. We know that, that in other places like Egypt, we have some records that when they did take a census, the local custom in Egypt was you go back to the town you're from. That was also the way that Jews would have taken censuses. You go back to the town that you're from. So all of this fits with what we know. Caesar Augustus calling for censuses. Quirinius being alive during that time, either administrating it or perhaps being uh, the governor during that time, depending on exactly what Luke means in his verdict. You can trust scriptures. And Luke gives us this so that we can put a date, a real time frame to when Jesus is born. The difficulty is for us, we live 2,000 years later, 
And we don't know all the details that Luke knew when he said, oh, by the way, this is when Quirinius had his census. But he tells us these things. And it's important even for us today so that we can have confidence. Luke and the other gospel writers, they're not making these stories up. They didn't just randomly one day say, you know what, this idea of the virgin birth, that sounds cool. That'll make Jesus sound really great. These things happened. And there were eyewitnesses to them. And we have in the Gospels, in the various accounts, we have the records and testimonies of people who were there and witnessed them. And they have been written down now for us by the apostles. You can trust the Scriptures. The census then brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. And when all were registered, each to his own town, Joseph went up from Galilee and from Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because it was the house and the lineage of David, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, and to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was the child. Now, I want you to think for a moment about how God works. God, in his prophecies in the Old Testament says in the book of Micah chapter 5 he says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem he says and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah and from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel that's a prophecy of Jesus given at least Five to six hundred years before Jesus was born. Before Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire were even a thought in the minds of men, God has laid this down in a prophecy. And then as time comes along, God could have just told Joseph and Mary, hey, get yourselves to Bethlehem. Uh, He could have said to Mary, this baby is due any minute. You better get down there. Remember that prophecy. You need to fulfill it. But instead, what he does to, to show his sovereignty, to show that he is in control of all things in our lives, even the minor little details, he has this guy, Caesar Augustus, all the way off, a thousand or more miles away in Rome, say, we're going to count the people so I can get my taxes. And then he has this census declared and and Mary and Joseph just happen to go to Bethlehem. And it just happened to be before Mary was due. All as part of the plan and purpose of God to fulfill this prophecy. These are not cute stories. These are not things that Luke just put together and said, hey, maybe I should invent that they were born in Bethlehem because there's this really bizarre Old Testament verse in Micah that nobody remembers, but I happen to see it today, so I'll just invent these things. This is your God and my God working because God reveals himself, and when he does it, he does it inside of history, in real events that really take place and happen and so the baby is born in a manger in this most lowly of places and while they were there the time came for her to give birth 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger, uh, in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This reminds us of places like Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no stately form and majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Here he is, baby Jesus, in this stable manger. How many of you have ever been in a barn? How many of you like the smell of barns? Okay, when there's not hay in the barn and all there is is, is animals in the barn, do you still like the smells? Uh, the smells can be overpowering. It's certainly, you know, not the place to put a baby. Uh, you just think of all the germs that would have been there. And this is before they had, um, you know, uh, what's the, the soap and, and all that germ-killing stuff that we lather on today. But this is not a place of, of stately majesty, of, of a place where, where you would expect to find the king of kings, that, that, that people would naturally go by the stable and go, wow, there's a really important person in there. And he's going to save the world. And he is the son of God. But this is what God did. That gets us to our second point this morning, the theological point. And second this morning, God uses angelic revelation to announce the birth of Jesus and show who he is. So the angels appear to the shepherd and and you know these things well. There was in the same region there, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. You can imagine in your mind's eye a a dark night where, where you can see all of the stars uh, not not like when you go into downtown York and, and at night there's all these light posts and lamps and, and shops that have their lights on. But, but if you've ever been out in the woods at night or you've ever been out in, in an area where, like out in a field where there are no houses around and it is dark. Maybe the moon was out. We don't know for sure. But all of a sudden an angel appears and, and the glory of God shines. And, and I imagine it being more radiant than, than the brightest spotlights we have today. And just lighting up in front of these shepherds. And, and they identified right away, this is the glory of the Lord appearing. Much like in the Old Testament where, where the cloud, the flaming cloud, would follow God's people at night and light up the heavens as they are fleeing from Egypt and wandering in the desert. Or even as, as they built the tabernacle, there was this cloud of great blinding light that, that descended the glory of God onto the tabernacle. And now here they are, these, these shepherds. These, these nobodies, these, these blue-collar guys tending their stinky sheep, and this blinding glory of God is there. And you can imagine why the, the angels are saying, do not fear. Uh, I would have been scared. Uh, I would have been hiding. I would have been running. I don't know. I, maybe I would have just been so scared you, you can't move. 
But the angel has a message for them, and he brings them this good news. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all the people. Uh, good news is, is the word we get gospel from. It's often used to, to announce royalty, to announce royal births, to announce when kings are put on the throne. They are bringing the announcement of Jesus, a royal birth. The king has been born. And then they say he's born in the city of David. Look at verse 11 and 12. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And you can imagine later on, you know, the, uh, the shepherds going through the town. How would you find a baby in the town of Bethlehem? Well, it's not very big, but it's big enough that if you're looking for one little baby and all the doors are closed and it's nighttime, it's not going to be easy. And, and then even when you find a, a baby, how do you know you have the right baby? I don't know how many babies and toddlers there were at this time in Bethlehem, but how do you know you have the right one? He'll be in a manger. That's the sign. This baby, it says he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Notice here in this passage, he is a Savior. And he is Christ, the Lord. He is the promised one of the Old Testament who would come and save his people from his sins. But this idea of him being Savior goes hand in hand with him being the Lord. That he is the King of kings. That he is in charge of all things. As we read in Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet in these moments, he himself is being held by this precious mother of his, Mary, who has just given birth to him. Can you imagine the amazement of saying a tiny little baby is Lord, is, is King, is ruler and will save us? It's ironic that Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who, who called for the census, was often called by his people, Lord, a king, a ruler, an emperor, Lord, even sometimes worshipped as a god. But the one who is the real Lord is this baby. And because he's Lord, he saves his people. And because He is Savior, He is also Lord. You can't have one without the others. And so the shepherds go to Bethlehem in verse 15. I want you to think for a moment, and this is the point of, of who Jesus is. Jesus is both here in these moments at the same time, both high and low. What do I mean by that? He is High in terms of his majesty, in terms of his glory, in terms of being the son of God, God, the son in the flesh who has created all things. He 
in his infinite majesty is is truly God. Jonathan Edwards has this wonderful sermon. If you ever have a chance to read it, go Google it online. It's called The Excellencies of Christ. And he says this, Christ is infinite in his highness. Quote, Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great, high above all. He is higher than all the kings of the earth, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest of angels in heavens. So great is he that all men, all kings, all princes are but worms of dust before him. All the nations are a drop in the bucket. The angels themselves are nothing before him. He is the Lord. He is God. He is infinite in his highness and we should bring him praise and glory and honor and then in this moment he is lowly he is there in utter humility lacking any stately regalness that he might have being swaddled wrapped really tight by his mom. I don't know if you, when you had kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews, if you've ever swaddled a child. It's tough. But you can really wrap those blankets tight and it makes them feel secure. And they, they often stop crying because they feel safe. The one who upholds the universe in all of his power and never stops upholding the universe is being swaddled and kept safe by his mom in a manger. It blows the mind. And so Jonathan Edwards talking about the lowness of Christ, he says there is not only infinite highness, but infinite condescension, meaning an, uh, think of how far he comes down to become this little baby, how low he is. He says, so none are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take gracious notice of them. He condescends. He he comes down not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things done in heaven, but he condescends or comes down to such poor creatures as men. Then he says this, infinite glory and the infinite virtue of humility meet in no other person but Christ. And I think you could even go so far as to argue we, we see it in no other place but in the manger, in the earthly life of Christ, and most ultimately on the cross where Philippians says he humbles himself even unto death on the cross that most shameful of punishments, that most humiliating of events for all people at that time. And the Son of God does all these things. When you think about Christmas, do you think about the glory of God? Do you think about the glory of, the, of Jesus Christ? Do you think about this wonder that, that, that this is... This that really happened is far more amazing than any other human story that has ever been written, 
ever happened or ever been made up. Star Wars is fun, but this is awesome that the Son of God would come down in such a way. And this brings us really to the series of applications that I want to make. The third point this morning, God receives the glory for coming for the coming of Christ. So you look and you see when you celebrate Christmas, glorify God like the angels did. They're singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Why does God do this? Why does God send his son at Christmas? It is to save us if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. But whenever God does these things, whenever God works or acts in the scriptures, his first and primary purpose or first goal is he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory, all the praise. We sing in the the Christmas carol today, come and, and give him laud, give him honor, or the psalm we read, extol the name of God. Tell about how great he is. We need to do that in our lives. We need to do that at Christmas. Scripture describes it, says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's it's like bragging, but not bragging about ourselves, bragging about who God is. Who would do this? I would not, if I was rich, send one of my kids to live in a stinky barn. I'm not rich, and I still wouldn't make my kids live in a stinky barn. But the King of Kings, who has all this radiant glory in heaven, God the Father sends God the Son, and God the Son willingly goes so that God can display to us how good and mighty He is. And you and I can sit back and go, wow, God really needs the credit here. God doesn't love me because I'm a lovable person. God doesn't do these things because I somehow deserve it or have lived a life worthy of Jesus coming down to save me. But God does this so that you might get this wonderful picture of how great he is. And at the end of the day, God's plan in sending baby Jesus and having him go to the cross and then he exalts him back up to the father's right hand is so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise and glory of God the Father. It makes us go, wow, God is awesome. There was a little bit of a kerfluffle, a hubbub, a stir up this week, or maybe it was last week. There was a professor at a college, Christian college, who, who basically said Muslims and, and Christians worship the same God. We both believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so we might worship differently, but it's all the same. It's not. And while Muslims and, 
and, and Jewish people might be people of the book and go back to the Old Testament, we have the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament looked forward to. And if you don't connect the Old Testament dots and see that Jesus is the fulfillment, see that Jesus is the Son of God, you are missing the, the capstone of the puzzle piece, if it, as it were. You are not giving glory to the same God. And in fact, if you look at Islam and you look at Judaism and you look at other religions like Mormonism and, and what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and Buddhism and all these other things, none of them have this amazing story about God getting all the glory. And even more, when I say none of them have this amazing story, none of them center on these real events. I hope this Christmas that you will really give glory to God. I hope this Christmas that you will be like the, uh, the shepherds who it says they go out from here and they are, they are telling others. And it says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Do you tell other people? And do you praise God for what he's done? And then finally this morning, can you say of these things, I believe. It's interesting, during the Christmas season, watched a couple different Christmas specials. And all of them, almost all of them, talk about believing, talk about hope, talk about faith. A lot of times, it's something where Santa or some figure or whatever, Christmas is losing its meaning, losing its magic. And so you've got to get all these kids around, kind of like Frosty the Snowman, and you all have to believe again. It, it's kind of like telling people, you all have to feel good, and then Christmas will have meaning again. That isn't the meaning of Christmas. And Christmas isn't about just stirring up good feelings in you. Christmas is about looking first at what happened and who God is. And in the overflow of that, the feelings come, the emotions, the meaning but it gives glory to God. Not telling little kids, well, just believe again in Christmas and it will have meaning. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and these things that are true and Christmas and your life and all of the things out of that have meaning and you will have peace with God. That is the promise of Christmas. Give glory to God. As you gather around and you give presents, and giving presents is fun, and I like giving presents, I like getting presents. But why do we do it? And when we do it, do we make sure that our kids know we're not just giving presents, we are giving something because we are glorifying that God God gave the ultimate something. The Lord Jesus Christ, born in a manger, born to suffer and die for our sins. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just want to give you praise 
that our purpose in life, the, the reason that you have us here is to worship you, to glorify you, to, to boast in your name. There are lots of good things that we can do in this life. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate end, my ultimate purpose is to glorify you and lift up your name and tell everybody how good and awesome you are. I ask this morning that as we think about Christmas, that we would be reminded that these things really happened. We might not know all the details the ins and the outs, but we know what your word tells us. We might not know on what street in Bethlehem this manger was, but we know there was a manger and it was there and it was during this time that you came. And out of that, we know who you are, Lord Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh, who left heaven. You did not... Give up your eternal nature or your eternal glories, but you veiled them in your humanity and became lowly and humbled yourself. May we glorify you even as the angels did on that day. In your precious name we pray. Amen.